perhaps a better distinction is the difference between a tenant in common project and a DST primarily is that the DST can accept unlimited numbers of investors. This is Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals, and today our guest is Dave Foster from the Exchange Resource Group. Today you're going to learn all about the 1031 exchange and specifically how it can be applied to real estate syndication investing. We've talked about syndication on the show before. I invest in syndications. I do syndications. And this topic comes up very frequently in online forums like Bigger Pockets or all the Facebook groups that are out there about uh, real estate investing right now. So we're going to get into the strategy, the mechanics that you can use to apply the 1031 tax deferred exchange to syndication investing. And then we'll talk about the advantages of the 1031 exchange in general and how it can be used over time to seriously grow your portfolio. So if you're a syndication investor or considering investing in syndications and you want to learn about the 1031 exchange, this is the interview to listen to. Stay tuned to the end. Uh, Dave has an educational platform he's going to tell you all about. Again, this is a very fun interview to record. You're going to hear that uh, we did it on a Saturday. Great time to talk about earning money. So here we go with Dave Foster from the Exchange Resource Group. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Taylor, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Happy to be talking. For those listening, we are recording on a Saturday. So Dave is a warrior. Yeah, you warrior. know, I'm looking out at, his, at a cloudless sky in Florida. The beach is 200 yards to my left. So let's cut this thing short, all right? Oh, man. We're going to get all the all the great information in here. Yeah. And we're we're pushing into winter here as we're recording. So it's not going to be nice out for much longer. So oh, that, was, that was a horrible reminder to you guys, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, right, right. All right. So the 1031 exchange, we're going to talk all about that today. Dave, can you tell us about your story before we get into, um, you know, topic of 1031s? Yeah, you bet. I was, you know, as we were sharing earlier, I love your focus on how to use real estate investing as a side to create generational passive wealth that's going to stay with you, but allow you to live life. You know, the two great premiums, commodities in life are time and money, right? Absolutely. And sometimes it seems like we've got time, but no money. We've got money, but no time. How can we use real estate to do that? That's always been in my mind. I got to tell you, about 23 years ago, there was an epiphany moment where three things came together, that three really weird events. It was a birth, it was a court case, and it was a real estate deal. And they all had nothing to do with with any either of the others. Thank <laughs> My wife and I had been dinks. We know the terminology, double income, no kids. It was party yep. life, right? And all of a sudden, this little bundle arrived. And I was smitten. And all I could think of was, how can I find more time to spend with this little guy? And at that same moment, as we were transitioning into parenthood, I had done a real estate deal, uh, a flip, um, one of my first flips, and sold it and thought I did really well. And then my accountant came to me at tax time. And I said, whoa, that's not nearly as well as I thought it should be. Oh, boy. Yeah, the taxes just killed me on the deal. 
And at that exact same moment, some friends of mine had alerted me to a court case. Yes, we were geeks that talked about stuff like that. A court <laughs> case that had just gone through the system for 20 years that was going to change the face of real estate investing. And it was around a topic called the 1031 exchange. The 1031 exchange is named after section 1031 of the IRS code. That's been around since 1921, but it was not user-friendly until this huge court case was settled in 1997. And now all of a sudden investors could use it to sell real estate, park the money with what's called a qualified intermediary, go shopping and buy new investment real estate and not have to pay tax on the profit. The light clicked on it went, holy cow, if I would have done that, I'd have $30,000 more in my pocket today. Rather than paying that tax, I'd be buying stuffed animals and lollipops for my son. Life would be <laughs> awesome. But that changed the whole fabric of my life because at that moment I realized this is truly for me the ticket to what I, what, um, I think it was Albert Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world. Harnessing the power of compound interest. Because compound interest happens whether you do anything or not, as long as you leave your system or your money in place. And that's exactly what the 1031 exchange was allowing me to do, was to put the tax money deferred at work for me indefinitely so that I could then go and focus on other things, chiefly enjoying being a dad, raising a family, and doing more real estate investing. So that was the confluence I was sold in that along the way, uh, we decided to start a company because we saw how powerful it was for us and started doing the 1031 exchanges for others. And I've never looked back. Fantastic. That's quite the story. And, and it's a very impactful lesson I can see because a lot of people don't know before they get into real estate investing that flipping specifically is very highly taxed. It's taxed as regular income. If you're not careful about it. I'm sure there's strategies to, to reduce the tax bill. But if you're just going out and flipping a house in your spare time, you're going to get whacked by the tax bill uh, at the end when, you know, the next year. So let's talk about the 1031 exchange as a tool and something we discussed before we started recording. I feel like I get asked or I see this question pop up on a weekly basis. Can I sell my property and you, and 1031 the proceeds into a okay. syndication. Can I invest in a syndication with a 1031 exchange? That falls really neatly into the classification of what type of real estate qualifies for a 1031 exchange. Now we already talked about the idea that flipping property does not because your intent when you flip a property is primarily to resell it. And that type of real estate does not qualify for 1031. 1031 real estate is any kind of investment real estate that you purchased with the intent of holding for productive investment use. So if you buy a property, fix it and flip it, your intent was to resell it. If you buy a property, fix it, put a renter in it and hold it for a while, your intent was to hold it for productive use. It now qualifies. So there's a little bit of an aspect of the length of time, but it's more about what your intent was. And it can be any kind of investment real estate. So strategy-wise, 
before I talk about the LPs, strategy-wise, my clients and I have used the 1031 exchange to go from perhaps starting with a single family home to then 1031ing into a small multifamily, into a commercial property, into raw land for development, into any class of real estate that you want, as long as your intent is to hold it for productive use. But it has to be actual real estate. And that's where we get into the syndication format. Because in most cases, a syndication is going to be set up as either an LLP, limited partnership, or a limited liability company. And for someone who is going to sell a piece of property and want to 1031, they have to take title to actual real estate. And so many of these syndications these days are set up so that you're not taking title to actual real estate. You're taking title to a membership interest in a company that owns a piece of real estate. So it doesn't work. You can't, you can't 1031 into it. Now, what we're starting to see, what you are discussing, how we can create for you is the idea of creating a syndication that allows tenancy in common. So that investor could sell their property to a 1031 exchange and purchase a tenant in common interest in the real estate that you're syndicating. So your LLC or LP could own 95% of it. The client comes in and owns 5% of it. And then you either have a management agreement in place on how it's going to be handled moving forward or at the end of the 1031 exchange, they then contribute their tenant and common interest into a membership interest in the LLC in exchange for the membership interest. Much like what we would call as a, I think it's a 721 exchange, an upread. You can't exchange into a REIT. Although what a beautiful passive entity, right? But you can't do that because you're not buying actual real estate. You're buying a membership interest in a company that owns a bunch of real estate. So a REIT may have a piece of property that they would like to own. You could do your 1031 exchange, sell your old property, buy that property. You've deferred all tax and all depreciation recapture. And then you exchange that property with the REIT for a membership interest in the REIT. And at the end of it, you haven't paid tax, you now own a REIT. Same exact kind of thing can be done with the syndication as well. The key is really in the financing and the structure. Interesting. So I can see, I mean, it gets fairly complicated to to stick with the syndication example. I mean, it, it, um, it, it sounds like a fairly complicated transaction to uh, exchange this tenant in common interest. And I'm just wondering, so what are some of the more detailed concerns uh, when you go down this route of, the tenant in common interest and then, you know, making the exchange of the, t the tenant in common ownership share for membership in the LLC to use that example. I mean, it, it would, I can see maybe you, you wouldn't want to do this for a, a smaller investor in a syndication. You would maybe want to go jump through these hoops for somebody who's investing a you know, quarter of a million dollars or something like that in a syndication right. where right. they're just a larger chunk. Whereas some of the 
25,000. It's a lot of paperwork, that kind of thing. I mean, what are some of those considerations? Right. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it, obviously, it's got another layer of things that have to be done in coordination with the client's legal and accounting professionals as well, because we have to take a property and file dissolution papers, take the property, then contribute it into change depreciation schedules. There's all kinds of things that have to be done. So it does complicate it. And financing, of course, is usually the big bugaboo. Because depending on what the financing is in place for the syndicator, they may not have the ability to take on tenant in common investors. So that's probably the biggest concern overall lies in the financing. Um, But when you think about what syndication actually is, just as a word, syndication just means a group of people getting together for a common goal. And what you talk about in the complications of being a small investor and getting into a limited partnership, well, there are syndications that exist a hundred different ways below that. A syndication could be three people getting together to buy a waterfront rental. You call it a syndication if you want. They own it as tenants in common. They were each able to use their money and their resources to purchase part of something that's bigger than they could have done on their own. But from my world, the real key is that when it's tenants in common, you're actually purchasing real estate. You may be purchasing a smaller percentage of a larger piece of real estate, but you're purchasing real estate and that's what qualifies it for the tax deferral of 1031. So it could be just a couple of people getting together as tenants in common. There are things called tenants in common projects, which are actually specialty built products where a large asset is divided up into no more than 35 interests. And each investor owns their share as a tenant in common. Uh, There's a special revenue procedure that allows for that. Perhaps the biggest form of syndication that is available for 1031 investors now, especially for ones with less money, is the Delaware Statutory Trust, DST. Now, these are large, large apartment buildings, commercial projects, and those kinds of things that have been set up as Delaware Statutory Trusts. The trust is actually the owner of the real estate. But because the IRS and the SEC have nuclear weapons and the Army, they get to decide what the (laughs) rules are. And so in 2004, they decided that Delaware Statutory Trusts interests qualified for 1031 treatment. So here's where that's really beautiful is because again, in my march to become passive, I want to trade time for money. So what I can do is 1031 until I end up purchasing a membership interest in a Delaware statutory trust. Now it may only be a hundred thousand dollars into a $5 million Mm -hmm. property. Guess what? You don't get voting rights when that's what you own. But you also have an experienced large company that's managing your money. You're getting a return for it. But most importantly, you have continued the tax deferral that you started over the years. And that's that's such a key. I, we don't have time to put it on the screen today, but I've done a, a performance that we do a lot of our classes that shows what happens if two investors 
start with the exact same property. And over the course of 20 years, they sell the property for the exact same return. Everything is exactly the same. The only difference is the one investor takes the deferred tax and buys more real estate. The other Mm -hmm. investor pays Mm -hmm. the tax. At the end of the time, 20 years, the investor that paid the tax has no, no tax liability. And they have almost $2 million in real estate. The investor that deferred the tax has almost $11 million of real estate over their control and a tax bill of about $500,000. Which would you rather have? I'd take that big (laughs) tax bill any day. Because there's all kinds of other things that we can do to continue to mitigate that. 1031 is not just a one-time occurrence. 1031 is deferral indefinitely. And that's a key distinction. Yeah, you can really get that snowball rolling. Um, and I, I've I've heard about the Dela, Delaware statutory trust in the past, but I, you know, it's 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 black magic to me. I mean, can you explain some of the basics of that structure? You know, maybe in comparison to like an LLC, because personally, I'm I'm more familiar with like an LLC structure. I mean, like, give me some of the basics of the Delaware statutory trust, if you would. If you want some nighttime reading <laughs> to put yourself to sleep. The revenue procedure from the IRS that approves Delaware Statutory Trust is 2004-68, and it provides a safe harbor. The trust is, a Delaware Statutory Trust is really the same thing as a land trust. It's just a specific legal form that says this piece of property is owned by this entity, which is a land trust. And in this case, it's a special form of that called the Delaware Statutory Trust. So there is a sponsor, a syndicator that puts it together, a management structure that lays out how the activities and operations will be. And there is also, there has to be all kinds of SEC compliance forms because it is classified as a security. Mm -hmm. So there's vetting that has to be done. There's the sponsor that has to provide disclosures, performers, operation, past history, all of those things. So you're truly vetting it out almost as a stock. You're looking at the strength of the company behind it, as well as the quality of the real estate, which makes it a really interesting animal. Um, Those people who are just real estate professionals don't necessarily know how to analyze a stock Mm -hmm. or a security. And those people who are just securities people probably don't have a clue how to analyze real estate. The Delaware Statutory Trust brings those all together and really takes a keen eye for both to be able to see, is this structure compliant? Is this company sound? And is the real estate asset sound beneath it? Because all three of those things have to be in play for you to have a successful Delaware Statutory Trust. Interesting. So it's I'm going to have to dig a little bit more deeply into this in the future. I mean, is it still, so you're establishing the Delaware statutory trust. Are you still, you know, in addition to that, are you doing like a, you you know, whatever, doing a 506B like filing syndication type of like exemption and then going down that path? Or are you just selling shares in the Delaware statutory trust? I mean, what are some of the kind of components here? It could go actually either way. The trust itself is just the ownership. Form. Okay. Yeah. It's what goes on the deed. And then whether you choose to go five or six, five or six B, or whether you choose to exempt from that is a decision that they make to accept investors. But 
Whereas with a, perhaps a better distinction is the difference between a tenant and common project and a DST primarily is that the DST can accept unlimited numbers of investors. Mm, okay. Yeah. So a $10 million piece of property, you could buy 1% of that property with a 99 other investors in a Delaware statutory trust. When you are tenants in common and you're trying to comply with revenue procedure 2002-22 <laughs> as the tenants in common, I know, see, I'm giving you all kinds more of- More nighttime reading. Yeah, exactly. Then when you're doing that, you can only have no more than 35 investors. Yeah, okay. So it's really mm-hmm. just about the structure itself. Quite a bit of complication in this, but you know we're talking tax code, so that's not. Yeah, you know, we got to stop talking tax code. This is Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday is one of the best days of the. Uh, it's one of my top seven favorite days to make money, right? Exactly, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got all of these structures uh, and and this these procedures, everything like that. Um, so what? <laughs> One of the questions that I have about this is once maybe we we want to do a 1031 exchange, we know we need a qualified intermediary. What do those kind of fee structures look like? I mean, how much is a, a utilizing a, a qualified intermediary going to impact my returns? Or, you know, is it crazy expensive or, you know, what are we talking yeah, you know, about? That's here? one of the beautiful things is that, first of all, the qualified intermediary has to be an unrelated third party who handles your exchange. And, most, most, most important for your listeners, that QI has to be in place prior to the closing of the sale. If you close your sale, you receive the money, you can't tip 31. And I get the call once a month or twice a month, and it breaks my heart because they're so excited to do a tip 31. And I just sold my property last week. And it's like, oh boy. Okay, let's get excited for the next one, shall we? Yeah, it's a problem. So I always try to make sure I slip that in so the people know. But because Thank the you. QI is an independent third party, all we can do in the transaction is the 1031. So as you can imagine, QI firms set themselves up to scale to generate market share and revenue, right? All we do are 1031 exchanges. So we've got to reach out and do mm-hmm. a lot for a lot of people. But what that also lends itself to in the industry are economies of scale and concentration of internal effort. So basically, because that's all we do, we get real good at it and we can do it with a small machine. So the fees typically don't break your bank. You know, a realtor, think about what a realtor has to do to sell a piece of property. You know, they've got to advertise, they've got to market, they got to show it, do all sorts of things. And a realtor will charge you between both sides, what, 5 6%. To do a 1031 mm-hmm. exchange, nationwide, the range for the midpoint is probably $750 to $1,000. Oh, it it is, does not break the bank. Whatever. As you get closer to each coast, they get a little more expensive. But regionality isn't really an issue because 1031 is a federal statute. It just that so happens that if they live in Redondo Beach, they have a higher mortgage payment, so they got to charge more. <laughs> And typically attorneys will do these periodically, but not for their clients because they have to be a third party. They will do them. They can be quite a bit more expensive, but usually it's just because they don't have economies of scale. They're only doing a few a year. So you're paying for the learning curve. 
But if you figure seven hundred fifty for to a thousand dollars for a complete exchange, it's nothing. Yeah, no big deal. No big deal. Okay, so another uh, question that I have is it it's a little bit complicated to sell a property and invest in a, a syndication via ten thirty one. What do you, in your opinion, what do you think the ten thirty one exchange lends itself to? Uh, the best in terms of you know property class or or investment strategy related to yeah, how real much estate. longer? Of course. Holy cow! Yeah, that is like <laughs> that's like the softest <laughs> pitch of all time. Here's what happens. Um, I'll, I'll try to make a portrait because truly, ten thirty one is for your entire life. So we're getting married later and later in life, right? And so often, she'll have a house. He'll have a house. They get married and move into one of them. They just became accidental investors. Mm-hmm. Time and time again. Well, they start to like the cash flow sure. that comes in from that. Honey, how about if we bought another rental property? So they do. Now they've got two. And they start to think, well, maybe I let's sell one of them because there's so much equity in it. And let's use the proceeds to go buy two more pieces of property. That's what we call a diversification exchange. When you have a lot of pent up equity, you're able to sell the property, use the 1031 to buy more smaller properties that either have better cash flow or reduce the amount of debt equity that you have. So diversification exchanges. You go along this way for a number of years and you wake up one day and you're tired. Why are you tired? Because you're already (laughs) on your fourth frantic landlord call and you realize I've got 20 crazy properties out here and they're driving me nuts. So you sell several of those within a condensed time period and use the proceeds to buy one larger asset that again can provide better cash flow or it may be in a different class. Because you can sell residential and move into commercial, which is inherently more passive in nature. That's what we call a consolidation exchange. So you can expand, you can contract. What's happening in California right now, nobody's got cash flow, right? Because properties are so expensive. Right. Meanwhile, in the Midwest, there's beautiful opportunities to get better cash flow. So you can sell in one region. Mm-hmm. and reinvest into another region using the 1031 exchange. There may be, what's the hottest property class going right now, Taylor? What would you say? Probably multifamily. Bingo. Yeah. You know, if this was three years ago, you and I would be having the same conversation. Let's go find some multifamily. Mm-hmm. But now that everybody wants it, what's the point? But three years ago, if you would have sold your single family properties, and started to purchase multifamily assets, you would have been taking advantage of market inequities. And where would you be sitting right now? So, and there's actually multifamily owners right now sitting around going, huh, this is at a premium. What's the next market class? Yeah, absolutely. That's going to pop. And so you can use the 1031 to change classes, to find places where the market is inefficient and take advantage that way. And you can always use the 1031 exchange to move into more and more passive opportunities, whether they're large multifamilies that are self that are managed, 
or whether they're commercial properties, Delaware Statutory Trust, tenants and common syndications. And you can do that all the way. At some point in time, you're going to want a vacation. Yes. So why don't you do a 1031 exchange and sell a piece of investment property and go buy a vacation rental in Reddington Shores? Generate income off of it. Use it some for yourself. So that, again, I've got kind of just touching on all kinds of points where the 1031 is applicable. And I've used all of these for myself as well. But here's where I think the two single biggest applications are. And if you, this is actually how my wife and I have made our real niche. And that is that, remember the 1031 exchange is selling and then buying investment real estate. Yes. But you do not have to leave that as investment real estate forever. You can, in fact, move into that property after a certain amount of time. And once you have lived in that property, then you get to take advantage of the provisions in Section 121, which is when you sell your primary residence, a certain amount of that tax deferred gain is going to become tax-free. Now, prior to 2008, Mm -hmm. you could exempt all the gain. So the rule was, right, if you lived in a property for two out of the five years before sale, you could sell it, and as a married couple, take the first $500,000 in gain tax-free. That was a great gig, and you could do it once every two years. So before 2008, what my wife and I did was we would periodically – 1031 into a really nice house. Use it for investment for a year and then move into it. Two years later, we would sell it and all of the gain from the 1031 exchange, all of the gain from when we lived it was tax-free. That's pretty sweet. We put that money into the boat fund. (laughs) And then we kept doing that. And finally, at a certain point in time, we were able to take real estate profits and we used them to buy a 50-foot sailboat that we lived on for 12 years and raised our boys on. Wow. That's the cool. ultimate passive move. Now, since 2008, the IRS, I'm pretty sure I'm a poster up in their office because they changed <laughs> the rule in 2008. You can't get all of it tax-free, but you do get to prorate it. So probably the greatest get going now is to position yourself so that you convert 1031 properties into your primary residence or a series of primary residences. What if you had like one of my realtors here in St. Pete does three waterfront condos side by side by side. When he's ready to retire, he's going to move into one of them. And when he's done living there, his wife says that when it's time to redecorate, we're moving. So he's going to live <laughs> in that one for a while. He will then sell it and he'll pay some tax, but he's going to exempt a bunch of the tax as well. Tax free in his pocket. Where is he going to move? Into the next one. And then into the next one. All the time, taking some money tax free, paying some tax on a little bit of it. What a gig. All you got to do is be willing to move <laughs> So how do, you, how do you calculate that tax liability? I mean, it's a complicated calculation. Is it straightforward? Is there a hard number? What does that look like? Well, this is why we all have accountants. Well, yep. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's really not that difficult. So once you have, so if the property was the product of a 1031 exchange, 
You have to have owned it for five years. You have to have lived in it for two out of the five years before you sell. And then you get to prorate it between the time you lived in it and the time you sold it. So let's say you bought a piece of property and used it for rental for a year. And then you moved into it and lived in it for four years. You would get to take four-fifths or 80% of the profit tax-free. Okay. That makes sense. Easy as that. You do have to recapture all of your depreciation. So you don't get away from that. Like I said, Darius got tired of the free lunch. <laughs> but it was, it was awesome. And it's still awesome while it works now. So all those things are things that you can do, Taylor, while you are going through the normal rhythm of being a real estate investor. Because what do we do? We look for opportunities to maximize cash. We look for buying opportunities. We look for selling opportunities. We look for opportunities to be passive. We'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk about the other great tax mitigator. And that's death. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. The mantra in the 1031 industry is defer, 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 and then die. (laughs) Yes. Because when you die, your heirs get all of your property at what is called a step up in basis, which means all of the deferred gain that you've been deferred tax, that you've been generating income on your life disappears. All the depreciation disappears and your heirs inherit the property tax-free. So what are they going to do then? First of all, they're going to buy you a really nice headstone. (laughs) Right. Secondly, they're going to start investing on their own. You have just changed your family's legacy and history for all time. I have clients that are on their third generation. Wow. That started with us doing exchanges for grandpa. And at each point in time, the next generation has started with a clean slate and then started building their own portfolios. What an awesome thing to be able to leave to your family because you've already been able to enjoy it yourself. I don't recommend what you have to do to get it, but it's, it still works. Going to happen to all of us someday. Good to know. We're all that path. Yep. 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 All right. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Dave, I got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. All right, let's go. Cue the Number one. <laughs> I should really, I should really get that. I'm a copyright infringer, but anyway, number one, what is the best investment that you've ever made? You heard me mention the boat. Mm-hmm. I would call that the best investment I ever made, but it wasn't a real estate investment. It returned to me memories in time that we could never recapture and duplicate. But it was because of real estate. But in terms of real estate, I think the best investment I ever made was one immediately prior to the dark days. Do you remember those? 2007, 2008, when life was not so good if you're a real estate investor? Uh, Vaguely, yeah. I bought a tract of land and created a subdivision out of it and sold the entire subdivision for a nice profit to a group who ended up going belly up in the great bad time. Uh, okay. But because I had sold it and did an owner carry back mortgage, I was able to foreclose and get it again and repeat the process. So basically I made a model out of foreclosing and then reselling. 
And it was, it was, again, I don't recommend the heartache, but it was an awesome result. Yep. Yep. Still have to pay the tax bill on your property tax bill and all that. So it's not free to buy land. That's right. But if you stay the course, even a bad investment can turn good. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? Probably that same one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would say, uh, gosh, the worst investment I ever made. They say that boats are a hole in the water that you throw money into. So if you hadn't gotten the memories... Yeah, you know, the happiest day of my life was the day I bought it. The saddest day of my life was the day I sold it. So I'm the outlier in that. Sailing um, is fun. So I'll give you You know, I, I really can't think of a truly bad investment. The one that performed the worst for me was a single family home that I bought in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. Hmm. Uh, that we, I rehabbed it and we were then lived, moved in and lived in it. And we were ready to sell it. And we had a broker's open house with 50 brokers that came by just to preview it. And that was on the Sunday prior to Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. And we did not get another showing on that property for six months. It ended up uh, unfortunate accident. Yeah. Yeah. Dark days. Uh, dark days indeed, I guess, if you will. Um, so my favorite question of these last three is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Patience. Patience is your ally, whether you're 16 or 65. Markets come and markets go. And then where I see, where I've seen over the course of, what have I been through now? Four or five different complete market cycles is that there, there gets this sense of mass hysteria mm-hmm. when things are going up. And so people are panicked to get in before it's over, not realizing that it's really not over. It just goes back down. And depending on where you're at, you can get hurt really, really badly by that panic. Whereas if you are patient to wait, the buying opportunities always come back around. And all you've done is avoid a lot of angst of having to try to hold on to bad investments and bad properties until they turn back around and come. I heard a really interesting statistic just last week that was talking about the average length of real estate cycles. It's much longer than we think that an entire cycle is really 16 to 18 years. Hmm, But those cycles typically only involve two to three years of correction. Several years of stagnation and the bulk of the time is in growth. So if you are getting in when you're really nervous about what's going to happen, rather than sitting on the sidelines, you could be in a recipe of losing quite a bit of your equity immediately. But if you're patient, it feels like you're waiting forever, but you're really not. And that, I think, has probably been the biggest lesson I've learned. Hmm. I like that a lot. Dave, thanks for everything today. The 1031 is a great topic, and you definitely shed a lot of light on specific ways we can use the 1031 
uh, specifically as it relates to syndications. And we got a lot more uh, information in there as well. So thank you for that. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you do? Or they want to ask more questions about uh, The best way to get in touch with me is going to be through our education portal, which is the 1031investor.com. We've got a YouTube channel with instructional videos, calculators, blogs. You can connect with me through there. And uh, seriously, we'd love to be a resource to you and all your game. Great. Uh, that is a great URL, the 1031 investor. That's fantastic. And and the links will be uh, in the show notes as well for anyone that missed it or if they don't want to punch that all into your, uh, your search bar. So thank you for everything today. Once again, it's been a great conversation and I hope to have, have you back on again. Hey, I look forward to it. That'd be awesome, Taylor. Maybe we'll do a Saturday interview again. <laughs> yeah, perfect. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a very big help. If you know someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our little tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.